In association with the Omniverse Comics Guide, this is the Cave of Solitude, your pop culture and comic book podcast coming to you from all over the world. I'm your host, Eric Anthony, and this is episode 295. Let's begin. Andrew McLean, comic book artist, the writer of Headlopper, Apocalypta <laughs> Girl, toy yeah. designer. I'm just reading off of your Instagram. What else you got under the belt? <laughs> That's enough. It keeps me busy right there. You're yeah. co-owner and designer of, of Laser Wolf Attack. Yeah. My wife and I, we just, we make things and uh, wherever, uh, whatever we're interested in or excited about, kind of, we go in that direction. But comics definitely takes up the majority of our time for sure. That's that's the go-to. That's cool. Um, this is your first time on the show. Thank you for coming on and and uh, responding to the Omniverse Comics Guide messaging to you. My my partner in crime, his name is Dave Molyneux. He's a big fan of your work, and he's the one who actually put me on to all of your books. And I'm thankful to him because there was a lot of fun reading them in preparation for this. But uh, yeah, big shout out to Dave for for helping us set this up. Thank you for coming on, by the way. I appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to it. How's your summer going so far? I saw that you uh, you attended San Diego, right? Comic-Con? did, yeah, yeah. How was it? How did you enjoy it? It was a little different. It was a pretty relaxing version of it. I think they sold, I'm guessing, like maybe they limited their ticket sales to maybe half of what they usually do. Um, so it was, there's a lot going on still, but it wasn't swamped. You could like actually walk around, you could still see your feet, you weren't bumping into people. I think I did like signings. I didn't do like an artist alley table or anything like that. So I was doing like an hour a day, maybe a little more. So it was, it was pretty chill, you know, for San Diego. It was a good time. Do you prefer that sort of, uh, setup for a con or do you, and I mean, I would prefer just being a a patron at them when you can move around a little bit, but as far as business goes for you, is it better when it's packed or do you like being able to interact and have that breathing space? I mean, it's true that if it gets too busy in there, it can get a little stressful. I mean, that said, when you are at like an artist alley table or something, you always have that spot to kind of hide and get off the floor, you know, so Mm -hmm. you're put you don't have to get in that heavy traffic too too much except for you know a bathroom break or some food or coffee or something so i mean i'm used to spending basically every hour of the show behind the table you know drawing talking and selling books and whatnot so this was you know a little different for me i've been with uh, the felix comic art um crew for uh not not too long i mean during i hooked up with felix during uh during covid during the lockdown and so this i've only done two shows with him and his um and the other artists that he represents um so you know just doing signings at his table was new but easy you know <laughs> the rest of the time there's the time i'd go do my drawings at like the pool or the bar or something so it was really low-key would you say that it's the um comic-con to go to i know that it's like the original one when people think of comic-con in san diego but out of all of the shows that you've gone to do you have a favorite uh you know it's hard i mean generally i like the bigger ones because i'm more likely to see more of my friends Mm. you know there's people to just like sell to and talk to and everything but i've done so many a lot of them feel similar you just get used to it yeah Um, 
my favorites are I like San Diego, New York is a good one. I like uh, C2E2, Emerald City. But I think my favorite shows to go to just kind of as a fan and just like see what's out there is like TCAF up in Toronto, SPX, because um, I'm just more likely to find something I haven't seen before that's like really unique. It's in its only comics. There isn't like, you know, you know, toy stores or like media stuff. So it's really comics focused. Um, but I also really love uh, designer con, which is not comics, you know, focused. There are comics there, but that's not it. It's like art and design and a lot of like designer toys and things. And so those shows that are a little different for me, I'm really excited to go to just as like a fan, just cause you know, a lot of the comic conventions, you start seeing the same types of things. So, mm-hmm. like, it, the novelty wears off a little bit. Yeah. So those that are really different or in a really exciting place are always really fun to go to. That's cool. I've always wanted to do a Heroes Con. In, oh, is it okay. North? Yeah, I heard that's, like, for a comic book fan and just for the artists and that interaction that you get, it's okay. one of the best experiences. So I've always Did- wanted to do that one. Yeah. It's not a massive show. It's still pretty big, but it's not massive. Uh, there, the, the shop, uh, um, heroes, uh, aren't hard to find is such a welcoming, cool store and they do such a good job just, you know, putting on a show where all the artists just want to go and hang out. So there's always a ton of really great, talented people there. Um, and again, it's also very comics focused. Like you said, there's like, you know, other comic book stores there who are selling comics, but for the most part, it's, it's mostly just creators. It's a really good vibe. Yeah, that's nice because you can you do get lost in the hubbub of everything and sometimes just get in those big cons because – have you ever been to Toronto, the Toronto Fan Expo or Can- Fan Expo not. Canada? Okay. Yeah, you should – I don't know if you have any interest in coming to it, but it's a pretty great show. I think it's third biggest in North America. Yeah. We wow. get about 125,000. Yeah, it's a pretty big show. but. Yeah. With with uh, all of the spectacle that it is, and it's a great show, sometimes getting from uh, panel to panel or building to building, like in New York, right, it becomes yeah. part of the planning. Sure. <laughs> so yeah. when you got something that's kind of like a sweet spot, like the way I've heard Heroes Con define, yeah. it's like, that's just right. Like, you're going for what you want to. It's kind of classic. You get a mix of the modern and the legends. Like, it's just a real... Nah, like perfect. I, you're right. I think you're right. Um, and if you haven't been, I think you still nailed, you know, nailed it on the head. That is that is the vibe. It's like kind of a perfect balance of, you know, size and like focus. It's a great and Charlotte's a great place to hang out and and, and uh, get food too. So it's definitely a win win over there. I gotta I gotta go there one day. I hope you come to uh, the show up here, whether it's the March one or the summer one. It's a good good comic community, that's for sure. I haven't been yet, um, but I do love Toronto because I've done the TCAF show a handful of times. So it's a it's a fun town. I get there whenever I can. Yeah, and there's a lot of um, a lot of my comic book uh, acquaintances and friends from here. Years ago, were talking about Headlopper, saying just how great it was. One of my friends, Mike Ruth, was a, a big fan early on. I don't know if you ever met Mike. Yeah, I have met him a few times. He's great. His wife too. Yeah, yeah. him and Erica. Shout out to both of them. Yeah. Sure. So he he was on a podcast early when I was doing this and he was talking, Oh, Headlopper, it's just so good. Andrew McLean, I want to make a book like that one day. And uh every time I see it I think of Mike. So I'm happy that I got around to experiencing what everybody was uh was talking about. But before we get into the details of Headlopper, uh I wanna go back a bit. Let's let's do a little bit of this is your life with Andrew McLean. Where did you grow up? 
Andrew? I grew up in uh, rural Massachusetts in New England. What was that like? Uh, it's pretty pretty basic. It's a very small town. I yeah. think 11,000 people or something. Um, I, you know, there was, there's not much to do there. I think I spent, you know, I spent all of like high school, either drawing, skateboarding or like playing guitar. I was in a band with my friends and if I wasn't doing that, I was, you know, I was skating or, you know, late nights just doodling, you know? So yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why I got into drawing so much is there's just not much to do in a small town like that. And you find, you find ways to entertain yourself. Yeah, that's. Are you still in a small town now? I'm not sure where Beverly, Massachusetts, is. Well, I just moved out of Beverly. Beverly is just north of Boston, Massachusetts, okay. right next to uh, Salem, which is a cool town. But I just moved to uh, to California. I'm in uh, oh, LA. Nice. So yeah, yeah. I haven't updated anything yet. It's all, I've only been here about a month or so. So yeah, Instagram probably still says you know, Beverly or Salem or something. How do you like it out there? It's a big change from going East Coast, United sure. States to, to the, you know, California. I mean, one of the reasons we came was for the weather. So every day is like sunny and delightful. So, so far that's great. You know, I didn't really know what to expect. I was, you know, I moved in with a friend, you know, to make it a kind of easy transition. And uh, that's great. I, mean, I didn't realize the neighborhood is really like, it's really cool. It's very walkable. There's still like, you know, bars and restaurants and fun stuff to do. And I have a little dog. And so it's like the neighborhood's really great for dogs. There's grass everywhere. I mean, so far, so good. It's been really awesome. You've earned it because those uh, Massachusetts winters, they're <laughs> real, right? Just like they are in Ontario. Oh, oh for sure. Yeah, you know. So, yeah, yeah exactly. when you need to escape that weather, I don't know how old you are. I think we're around the same age. You were, it's like, I'm done. People get excited for snowflakes and a nice snowfall. Yeah, maybe once or twice a year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like that first time, and then after that, it's just ice. It's just sheets of ice and frozen, frozen, you know, brown and black snow banks. Yeah, it's no fun. Christmas Eve, Christmas morning, nice snowfall, go outside, throw snowballs, toboggan. I'm good. Yeah. After that, bring back the That's sun. Right there. One go. One go. <laughs> no, is once. It's perfect for once a year. And we'd love it, right? If it came once a year, we'd be outside eating the snowflakes, knowing that it would always be a yeah. good snowfall that day. But middle of uh, January, uh, I'm good. No. I'm good. Yeah. It, it's much too much at that point. Yeah. That was definitely a uh, a big factor in deciding to move out this way is just, just you know, sun. Sun all year long. I'll take it. That's good. Um, what kind of dog do you have? She's a French bulldog mix. She's like she's three quarters French bulldog and uh, one quarter uh, Russian toy terrier. So she's like a small French bulldog, but just as crazy as all the others. And how old? She's oh god, she's almost five. It'll, she'll be five in October, November, I think. Yeah, yeah, little Lola. She's our little maniac. They're the best. I mean, I tell my wife all the time. I can't imagine. We have a dog ourselves, but. She's a senior now, so every day is uh, every day is special when you have them. She's a black lab, so she's a thirteen and a half. Yeah. So uh, and she's still she doesn't look it. She's still taking the stairs all on her own when she's not supposed to, and you know going for my comics that are on the shelf. She'll eat a couple if she can't. Like she doesn't seem that old, but yeah, they're, they're the best. Sorry, I didn't hear what you said. Go ahead. I said, but you know, in your heart, yeah. Yeah, there's nothing like. 
I don't know. That company is just irreplaceable. Even though they don't say anything to you, it's so yeah, comforting. Yeah, it really is. It's um, yeah, it's uh, unconditional for sure. And it but always gives you a good reason to go for a walk, right? Like if you're getting lazy, you look at that dog and you're like, listen, it's, it's in true. my best interest to make but sure then, you go for a walk. I feel like the only reason I've ever known any of my neighbors is because I have a dog to walk. And then having to leave the house and get out and, you know, get into the neighborhood is actually has made me meet more people and make more friends. And it's not like I got a dog to have like a little buddy to like watch movies with or whatever. But <laughs> some of the major parks were surprises like being forced to go out and stretch your legs. Yeah, no, it's so true. They, it's funny how a pet, especially a dog, like I don't know about cats so much, but a, a pet like a dog just, it really does alter your life. Like you said, going out, waving to neighbors, interacting with other people who have dogs, it's just, it's a healing thing. Often. Yeah, it's it's very positive. And how many people just want to like stop and say hi because you have this little dog with you, you know, or just like when you see someone, you see someone drive by and they just like see you with their dog and they're just like, oh, cute dog. And they're like smiling. I'm like, oh, all it was, was the existence of this animal. And it yeah. made that smile. Very positive. We got a, a dog in our neighborhood, three-legged dog. He is, he's like a, a wizard. I think he's like 17 years old, right? And uh, he's hobbling along on all three legs. Looks like he's got a smile on his face and his name is Champion. I know champ. I know champion, but I don't know champion's mom's name. I just know that's champion's mom. <laughs> you just dog. Yeah, exactly. None of the humans get to know each other. You just get to know each other's dogs. It's so funny. Oh yeah, yeah. That's champion's mom. Yeah, yeah. If you see uh, champion's mom at the grocery store, it's hey, you're champion's mom. But not you don't know you know you don't know Sally's name. That's so funny. So. Being in a in a small town like that, you had your your band, you had skateboarding, which seems like pretty typical things that people would do as, right. as teenagers in those areas. But how'd you get into comics? Was there a comic book shop? Was it your friends doing it? Yeah, we didn't have a comic shop. I think the first time I went to a comic store, I was probably like sixteen or seventeen because I think I finally was able to like drive myself, you know, a few towns over to a store. Um, I think. The comics that I did have, which weren't many and weren't, you know, updated very often at all, I think were a few of them I think I'd gotten for, like, Christmas or something from, like, at the time you could still get comics, you know, on a spinner rack in, like, a drugstore or convenience store, uh, in the magazine rack at, like, grocery stores. So yeah. any comics I did have, I think, came from that. Um, the best comics I had, I think somehow usually came from my older brother trading something on the playground for a comic. Like he brought home, um, you know, you know, uh, Man Without Fear, you know, nice. with uh, Miller and you know John Romita Jr. on it. He brought home just the last issue, <laughs> which is like had been the most violent comic I had ever seen to date. And uh, I just loved that Daredevil didn't have a superhero outfit in it. He just had this totally badass, like, black sweatsuit and, like, bandana over his head. And so that was it, you know, from a handful of comics that we got, you know, from the playground and a handful that we got from a grocery store. Didn't have much, but I would just read them over and over and over again. And I would, you know you know, copy all the panels. That's how I learned to draw is basically copying panels out of like Spider-Man comics and things. Um, and, uh, it was enough to keep me interested in that. And like, you know, there was at the time, 
there would have been like X-Men and uh, some Spider-Man cartoons. So any access to that stuff I could, I could get, I was all for. I was two feet in. Yeah, that was the same generation I grew up in. It was, uh, there was a couple comic book shops, but it wasn't something I was really privy to. If you saw one, it was like, ooh, like that's a whole store of that. But it was always the convenience store, Spinner Rack. Exactly. Your, my collection as a kid was so, like, I got one issue here and one issue yeah. of that. Nothing connected. Nothing connected. I was the same. I think that's why, like, I I would think about that. Even, even when I got older and then have a little bit of my own money because I had allowance or eventually a job, I would try to follow a run of comics that I'd be purchasing at a grocery store. And I guess nobody told the buyer at the grocery store that, you know, this is a series. You yeah. should probably <laughs> idle for a second so you can tell the whole story. But yeah, I'd get like three or four issues into something and I'd be like, so close. I'm going to finish a run of, you know, Uncanny X-Men or something. And all of a sudden they apparently stopped buying that title and there'd be no more Uncanny X-Men and I'd never find out how a story finished or whatever. There's, I almost never got to read an entire story. It was just... You know, like you said, like issue two in the middle of a run, you're like, I don't really know what's happening, but I like the pictures. Yeah. yeah. It was, uh, I remember the, the Death of Superman came out with a trade. That was the first time in my memory that I saw a collected story of, a, of numerous issues all bound together to read it in one sitting. And I was just floored by that. It was such <laughs> a thrill to have like the whole Death of Superman. I know every beat that happened in the thing. <laughs> But um, that was that was kind of like those moments where you started to – I would go back afterwards and pay more attention to the numbering and say, oh, I'm actually kind of close to this story being like, – I'm just – there's a couple fill-ins. Right. So yeah. it was, it was I think, the graphic novel for me. Oh, I, so I don't know how you feel about the term graphic novel. Some people are like, ah, I think it works. <laughs> I don't even really care one way or another. You can call it trade paperback, a collection, graphic novel. It's, to me, it's the same. Yeah. <laughs> but but the collected format of it is my favorite. Of course, yeah. Because or maybe people have nostalgia around and like they like to collect singles. A lot of people have that. But for me, it's like I like knowing that in one go at the store, I've got I've got the whole you know a whole season of story. I like knowing that without effort. I've got it all and I can stick it on my shelf and my shelf is organized. You know, it's not, it's not folding over. <laughs> I like it, it. Do you, do you have a pretty big collection? Uh, it gets big. Um, but I, I, well, my wife and I move fairly regularly or we have mm. and found it's probably better to keep my collection kind of at a minimum. So I, I it's hard. But I have to like set a few rules for myself. Like, all right, even if I really like this book, um, if I don't think I'm gonna go back and read it again, if once was like enough for me, I should like part ways with it at some point, trade it in, give it to a library or whatever. Um, I have the exact same. That's the same thing for me. It'll just keep going. It'll just keep spreading out. It'll take over multiple rooms. You know. Yeah, I uh, I moved a few years ago. And I made sure that I moved every comic book box. 
that I had to move. Yeah, I do the same. I'm like, yeah. So I've learned to make those boxes smaller and smaller <laughs> because they're so. I mean, even a small box of books is just a stack of paper. It's not. It's not light. No, no, it's not. And after I did it, I realized, man, you got a lot of shit. Yeah. Maybe you should rethink this. But what I during the pandemic, you couldn't go to comic book shops the same way, and so I started to buy, get into the omnibus game. Oh, yeah, so yeah. So I'm not probably ever going to move again <laughs> with what I bought because I don't want to be the one to have to move these things. But, yeah, uh, yeah. you, you got to be honest with uh, – you're right. Am I going to read that again or was that a once-through, good job, loved it, see you later? I've had to do that a couple times, yeah. It's fair. Yeah, and it is. donating it, just, it, it's a great idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's like, yeah, I try to find a way. You know, I don't want to trash it. I don't want to necessarily recycle it. If I can put it in someone else's hands, that's, you know, that's ideal, you know, of course. Makes me wonder, like, man, like, maybe I should move to digital at some point. But there is that whole, that whole feeling of holding in your hands, seeing your, like, you seeing your book, uh, seeing the book, like, in front of you and touching it, the smell of it, you know, all that is really nostalgic and it it's, just a feels com- r- it's a comfort it's just better yeah. i mean right. i know i know people digital is you know, more economic as far or even like environmentally friendly but right. with, with these things like there's the smell yeah right yeah, of a- when you crack it open and i don't know if you've noticed but even certain um publishers they the inks in those books they is distinct the dc book a distinct smell yeah. it's just one of those things that immerse you in it where mm. When you read digital, what I like about digital is sometimes you can really examine panel per panel. That's sure. a nice feature, yeah. but it's not quite the same as the progress that you make turning the page. Yeah, I don't know why. I think it's maybe showing my age, but I feel like when I read digitally, I feel like I'm reading an incomplete project. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh, this hasn't, this hasn't finished its journey to becoming a book. And I guess it's maybe because as I'm making the comic myself i'm i'm moving through all these digital files and stuff so to me all these all these files of comic book pages feel like i'm on in the on the road to like creating a physical product i don't know maybe that's rubbed off on me but yeah i feel like when i have a actual book in my hand I'm like this is this is the final form right here right and and now getting into your bookmaking um what do you set out to do? Because you do all your stuff, like indie project. I think you're, I read that Headlopper, you started it off as a Kickstarter. Is that, am I remembering that correctly? So, um, pretty close. Yeah, the very first one, um, I work with my wife a lot. We just, we we published it ourselves. Just we published 100 copies to start. Um, it was just kind of a, a passion project. It was like 20 pages. Um it was just a mostly a for fun thing. I don't even think we pitched it to publishers right away or anything. We were just like, this is a I had I'd already worked with a handful of writers on the thing on projects that they had come up with. And okay. it wasn't as, you know, creatively rewarding. Right. And so to venture out and do Headlopper um all by myself um was just kind of a way to, you know, scratch an itch and be like, oh, like, I've got this time, I've got this ability, let me seize it and um, make something all that's just mine, you know? And uh, so at the time, we were like, let's just do it, just put out 100 copies, take them to a convention. I think it gave like half of them. 
And, um, but I had so much fun with it. And then I got, you know, positive response from the ones I had given out. We uh, printed more and then we did a Kickstarter to make another issue. And so I think we did, um, we did two issues self-published that amounted to, I think about 65 or 70 pages of content or so. And then, um, I, uh, at that point I started to work with dark horse and we did apocalypse girl with them. But while I was working on that image had come around and asked if I wanted to do, um, Headlopper with them. And that was my goal. It's like when I pin- finished Apocalypse Girl, I wanted to go back to Headlopper. So it worked out very well That's that I was great. able to, you know, take, yeah, take, get a head start on this project at Image from the self published stuff I did and, you know, and pick up where I left off and start publishing with them. That's so cool that you were able to, everything that you kind of envisioned all worked out just at the right pace. But you started off Headlopper, and I say this to myself a lot and I say it to my friends. If you want cool things to happen, you just got to give it a shot. Just do that thing, right? Yeah, and you don't need to – I think sometimes people feel like they need like – they need like almost like permission or they need to like cross cross a threshold for them to feel like, oh, now I'm ready or something. But as an artist, I've recognized at least to myself and I think it's generally universal. You just like – you never really feel ready. You never quite ever stop feeling – you kind of never feel quite good enough. Do you know what I mean? So really, it's like there's no better time to start to go do that thing that you just want to do, except right now. Like right yeah. now, just just do it and get out there and do. Don't worry about whether it's like good or whatever. Just make something that like makes you happy, you know. Yes. And like in that kind of like positive frame of mind, I feel like is like the right place to start anything. And like just being like what. What, what, what would I get pleasure out of doing? And yeah. don't, and throw the rest out. It's too, it's too easy to find, you know, reasons not to do something. Um, it's so give yourself all the reasons to give, give yourself all the permission you need to, to actually go the thing you want to make. You know? Yeah, I, I agree with you. And you shouldn't be ever as good as you think you should be for that project or that, in, like for myself, I often, I've interviewed people. I've had, you know, almost 300 podcasts, but I still get nervous. Oh, yeah. Right? You yeah. should get a little, because I'm like, am I good enough to, to handle an interview with so-and-so or, or, you know, will I know what I'm talking about? But that the only way to get better or to get to that point, like, you oh, got to yeah. start off not being start. the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no one's the best when they start. No one kicks in the front door being a, you know, a hero. Yeah. Like which, which, I don't know if you're into sports, but which athlete do you want to have a great rookie season and then just flounders or just has the same season as a good rookie? Like, no, you want your best season to be season eight, season nine, right? Aspire to be more, you know, have something to, to, to chase. Yeah. Right. But you gotta, you're not going to be the best version of yourself in the beginning but just do it just do that thing yeah totally how how long was the story of headlopper swirling in your head because it seems like such a fleshed out world that you like whenever a creator makes a map of a world you're Uh, like they've really got this thought out right but was uh, was it something that just kind of grows as you make it yeah it definitely grows as you make it i think and at least for me i feel like that's the best way to approach it um you know, like when I started, like when we did that self-published 
self-published, like immediate, you know, 20 pages, I really only had planned out for me uh, an idea of what I'd like to do after that and a very general idea. I didn't even have, you know, all of volume one kind of planned out yet. Um, uh, And so it's, yeah. And sometimes, sometimes it's like, an illusion, you know, of looking like you've planned all this stuff. Some of the things you can like even say things like mention a character if you want that you really don't know anything about. You know, I always held myself to this rule that like once it's on paper, it's canon. And until then, and I can still move things around in my head, you know, as long as I don't break the machine that I've already built. And so a lot of the stuff as I've moved forward I've, you know, the longer I work on it, the further out I plan. And so now that I'm, you know, four volumes in, I've plotted out a volume five and it's almost 10 years. I think it's like nine years or something since I started. Now I've got ideas through the end of like the big story, like the, you know, the, what would be like the final, you know, story of the whole series. Um, but it certainly didn't start that way. It started way back. It started very small. And as I go, it gets bigger and I get, you know, you get, like you said, you just get better at, you know, laying down plan the future. So it does, it definitely didn't start with a map. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I should have, I did a disservice. I should have said to the people listening who may not know what Headlopper is, can you give people like the elevator pitch or a synopsis of what the character and what his world is like? Sure. Uh, so Headlopper is like a high fantasy world. Think of something like, you know, Conan the Barbarian or whatever. Um, and Norgal is uh, a barbarian in this world. It's a world of monsters and, you know, um, feudal systems, kings and queens and, you know, knights and, you know, all that Lord of the Rings kinds of goodness. Um, except, you know, the thing that really, I think, sets it apart is that Norgal's, it's a part of the big story, but Norgal's basically cursed with, you know, carrying this talking severed witch head that is Agatha. And they hate each other. And he has to keep her safe, but he'd really love to just throw her <laughs> in the ocean. Like, she's so annoying to him and she loves that she's annoying to him so she does everything she can to uh, you know foil you know spoil his plans and and get on his nerves um and he's kind of an easy target for that he's total badass when it comes to fighting um and and uh you know cutting the heads off of monsters but he's kind of a big baby when it comes to dealing with agatha (laughs) thorn in his side (laughs) were you um in regards to the inspiration of Headlopper, were you a big... I felt like, as I'm reading this, this has that quest feel, almost like a Zelda. Oh, yeah, definitely. Conan the Barbarian is in there. There's a lot of that sort of... Like you said, that feudal system, the Vikings. and Were you into that stuff growing up? Lord of the Rings and Dark Fantasy and Sword and Sorcery? Yeah, yeah sure. A variety of it. Um, and over the years, as I've worked on it, I've you know, read and consumed so much more, you know, I just, you know, now I'm kind of, I guess at this point, almost made myself a student of fantasy a little bit, you know, like there's something about, you know, writing, you know, a high fantasy story that my mind kind of wants to like stay in that kind of genre, um, to just, you know, 
to understand it. Um, but yeah, as a kid, I was I loved Lord of the Rings and Conan. Uh, I was really into like the Ray Harryhausen movies, like Flash of the Titans, growing up. Uh, and I've just always, always loved Zelda. Zelda is a pretty big inspiration for not only like stories and kind of like texture and creatures and characters, but also just like you know creating a structure to to tell a story around. Um, so many times I, you, I can look at you know a Zelda level where you know you gotta go. You walk into a room and there's like multiple doors. And several of them are locked, and you got to go down this door and down that way. You're gonna find you're gonna find a key and or a map, which helps you you know get into the next door. That helps you find the next item to get in the you know in the next place. So I think a lot about those kind of like game kind of you know storytelling systems when I'm plotting out headlopper stuff. Um, some volumes more are more rigid than others, but. Um, but yeah, definitely. I'm always thinking like, all right, what is, what are the objects, you know, what are the desires of the characters? What objects do, would they need to complete their quest and what obstacles can I put in their way to get these, these, you know, these objects that they need, you know, to move forward. And so like, I'll, I'll plot their like kind of character journey, you know, in a broader sense, but then, you know, their actual like physical motions and things they actually have to do. I think about Zelda a lot, you know, about, you know, it's not exactly storytelling, but it's like almost like a puzzle. You make like a right. puzzle, character walk through it. Right. You know? Yeah, I got that feeling when it's funny that, you know, it turned out to be a, a big inspiration for you because as I'm reading the books, the book, or when I read indie creator stuff, I, I try to think of what else this could become. Because it is theirs, right? It's not. It, you're not talking to someone who's just doing Spider-Man or, stuff, you know, working on stuff we've already seen numerous different mediums of. But when it's yours, I'm thinking, could this could this be a, a television show? Could it be a movie? Could it be a, for for your book? I thought this is a video game. <laughs> I do. I have in my like fantasy of a, a video game. I think it's really funny because I love the idea of. A video game where you you play as Norgal, but Agatha can be like your secondary like weapon. <laughs> like, yeah, but it's every, almost like Navi, right? She can almost be like a Navi. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I always picture just because, like, you know, he would use her as a weapon just to like almost torture her, drive her nuts, or something. So like every three hacks of the sword, he you know swing Agatha like she's a flail or something like that. Yeah. yeah I, I think it could make a kind of a funny, fun video game. Yeah, especially because you got those moments where in the fight scenes, spoilers, I mean, he cuts people's heads off. But in the <laughs> fight scenes, he's battling. And then all of a sudden, there's this moment where he like, it, it feels like the character has supercharged up. And now's his chance <laughs> to like, headlopper, like you probably got to press the button in order for yeah, him to you use gotta that. Hold it. You got to hold it, right? And, and Agatha has those moments in the book where she's the ultimate weapon. Right. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. it's like so these little tokens. Charged up. Yeah. Yeah. Like I just felt like this is like a video game quest. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I I think that too. I always think fondly of, you know, the 90s video games, side scrollers, you know, beat-em-ups, like things like Golden Axe or whatever. Yeah. 
the the art style choice, I'm. It puzzles me how you managed to do this because you made a very violent story, very kid friendly. And I I couldn't other than the fact that he chops people's heads off, I couldn't really find too much reason to be like, no, a kid can't read this. I'm like, this is perfect for a kid to read. Maybe I'm wrong because I'm <laughs> I'm almost forty years old. But did you have it designed to kind of play like that? No, I really set out not not having a real goal, just having kind of like more of a vision and whatever that, you know, whatever this idea was going to be, it was going to be. Um, so it just kind of follows some of my, what, what are things that I see for it or feel comfortable drawing or whatever. And so I like, there's only a, only a small square. And usually if I think it would just be really, um, there's very, very limited, you know, sexuality in it. Um, and, and even when there is that I don't show it, it's just not really a part of, I always feel like this, like sometimes in fantasy, like, especially like, you know, um, you know, like I guess lowbrow fantasy, there's like, there's so much like sex crammed into it. And I'm like, sex and an adventure really don't need to, to be so smushed up against each other. Like, as you can see in Zelda, Zelda's, you know, a fantastic, um, you know, fantasy adventure and like, it's not a part of it. So I always left that out of it. And for, and then even for violence, while it's a very violent book, me personally, I don't really want to draw, um, like extreme gore. I don't really want to draw organs spilling or anything like that. Like I don't make it really grotesque. I make it, I want it to be kind of like funny, like tongue in cheek a little bit. It's not gratuitous. It's not like, oh, what just happened? Yeah. And so what I do is I do, because I think this part of violence is funny for whatever reason, I just do lots and lots of blood. Like, so like when, when they, when people or creatures die, it's like a geyser, you know, it's like. Yeah. Yeah. Like that Kill Bill sort of. Exactly, Akuma. Yeah, like I love like you know old martial arts movies, um, and and I love Kill Bill, and you know Kill Bill is, you know Tarantino is trying to mimic old martial arts movies where it's like you know someone gets their hand cut off, and at a glance you can tell absolutely that <laughs> the hand is that it's it's fake that it's fake, and the a hose an actual hose of blood squirting from just a red stump. You don't see like bones. You don't see anything that's like gross, but you see just a shit ton of blood. And I always think that's just really funny. And so I'll do, you know, I'll just do excessive blood and I won't really show anything beyond that. And that's fun. I didn't say, I wasn't thinking like I'm trying to make a book that, you know, young adults you know can read but that is kind of the result is me just being like oh but blood is funny to me (laughs) (laughs) but it's it's true it's kind of like the it's weird and i totally understand what you're saying because i grew up being a fan of pro wrestling which is very violent and people are being thrown around chairs and tables all that stuff but i i have a hard time stomaching a ufc knockout okay which yeah, is it's that's real. Like that guy got his lights knocked out. What in in wrestling when that guy got hit with a chair? Yeah, I I would think his lights got knocked out, but it's so cool that he gets back he, up. Like, yeah. Right? Yeah. 
some guys take a chair shot in wrestling and they just stand there like it, yeah. nothing happened. So and it, like, get more. Yeah. So it's like a it's like a character trope. Whereas right. in UFC, that guy is knocked out. He's hurt. He's yeah. hurt. Yeah, he's really hurt. And and another person was purposely trying to do that, which is I don't got a problem with combat sports. It just feels different. It's the same thing with the violence, right? That sure. chopping off of the head and the blood squirting out so unrealistically makes you yeah. laugh. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm going for in that is like, yes, it's yes, it's violence. Yes, it's extremely violent. Um, but it's not I'm not taking it very seriously. You yeah. know? Um but yeah, I'm just trying to correct myself. I always think that if I like I always feel like if I make myself laugh while I'm working, then you know maybe other people will laugh too. What uh, what were some of your favorite? I think you mentioned it, but did you have um, a favorite fantasy genre that's kind of like you go back to to get inspiration, or do you just keep mixing it up? I try to keep mixing it up because you know every time you think you've you know seen you know a repetition of ideas, another one will come at you. And, you know, and, and you get all excited about it again, that the possibilities of the genre. So, like, I only recently read through all of uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's um, Earthsea books. There's, I think there's, like, seven of them or something. And she wrote them over, you know, decades of time. Um, and I just love them. You know, the first one, like a lot of series of books, the first one you read it, and it's not totally, the world isn't fleshed out entirely yet, but... By the time you get through them, you know, uh, you just you just have a great love of the characters. Um, and in that one, it's not, you know, horseback. It's not, there are dragons and things, but it's like, it's more like Wind Waker, really. Like, in the, the characters, you know, like Earth, the, the universe in the Earthsea books are, um, is, is like ocean. There's uh, tons of ocean in the whole, the whole uh, island, I guess is, you know, a series of islands. And so there's tons and tons of sea travel, but you're still following around like, you know, a wizard or wizards or a handful of different, you know, more traditional, um, you know, fantasy characters or tropes. Um, but I, I, you know, I never read one like that. So reading, falling in love with, you know, the Earthsea books just showed me that like, man, like there's, there's so many different ways to do fantasy. Right. Did you did you have a volume that you enjoyed the most while you were making? It's tough. I I know that like whenever I am finished with one, I'm certain it's like the worst one. Whatever's whatever is the <laughs> one, I I'm confident I'll never get to make anymore. Um, yeah, so I always need some distance from them to come back around on them. But I think. It's tough. My favorite is either the second or the third. Probably the second one. I think the story is strong and it's like tragic and I really enjoy just like, just, you know, well, I don't want to spoil it too much, but I, I wanted to make it a an adventure that I had full freedom to draw different types of backgrounds that could go and draw things that were real trippy and, you know, kind of psychedelic and strange that didn't necessarily exist on this place while also all of a sudden being in the mountains. So I created this Zelda-ish system that gave me ways to draw more colorful and kind of fantastical, like, settings and stuff. 
Um, but I also just thought, you know, the villain in the second one was just so kind of sadistic. And the story, I think, is, you know, is tragic in ways. And being able to hit that kind of being able to both draw some of the weird shit that I was like really craving to draw at the time and also have it be a story that I think, you know, uh, conjures some, I guess, empathy. Right. Uh, was fun. But the volume three, I like that it just didn't fall storytelling wise. Uh, while I was able to squeeze in there a whole bunch of like kind of large fantasy ideas, uh, the f- kind of format of storytelling and it didn't, it didn't follow a very firm structure. I felt it was, it's the least kind of formulaic of the books, which I think is kind of fun. And when I went, got to volume four, I was like, I better get a little formulaic before I lose the audience altogether. <laughs> Cause I felt like volume three is just like off the rails. Every character goes in a different direction, bounces off another one, comes back in. Um, so, um, I thought that aspect of it was really cool. So probably two and three are my favorites, I'd say. That's cool. I, I like the way you broke that down. And, and the volume two, I felt like it's hard to make the, the sequel better than the first hit, right? That's always people say, like, what sequel is actually better than the original? But I felt when I continued reading the series, I've, uh, clearly volume two has the most uh, character development in the sense of, you really get to see a part of the character that prior to you didn't know was there, but this is the one where it's established. This is the one where you see the heart and the pain. Yeah. And it and it fall and, and what happened in volume two will follow Norgal and all the decisions he makes because of what happened in volume two. I and in a weird way, I know this is a, maybe a strange comparison, but I feel like these four volumes are like the Led Zeppelin albums. One, All right, uh, one to four. Like the way you described it, it was like, because I like I like Zeppelin two a lot, but you know everyone refers to Zeppelin four because Stairway to Heaven, and in that, in that book you got the the stairway that they go up to and everything like that. There is a stairway to heaven, yeah. And and volume three has, it doesn't follow the same sort of structure. And the, when right. You, you right, and when you listen to Zeppelin three, it doesn't have what you got accustomed to with the first couple. So I don't know if that's strange, but it just came to me. It's like these are very that sort of Viking, the that's perfect funny. soundtrack to go to it too. But that's really funny. I I think for me the road that that took was I wanted the I wanted it to be uh you know uh, a crazy book. I wanted to I wanted to be able to do put put you know Norgal and Agatha and other characters like I wanted to be able to put them through the ringer. But even if I, I just told myself this was inspired by watching The Sopranos, mm. is that I, anything that I did to Norgal and company, I needed to have weight. You know, I didn't want them to be cartoon characters that they could go, I could do kind of terrible things to them and have them walk away emotionally unscathed. You know, I didn't want to, that felt kind of like disingenuous in a way. So the way I, my reference point is always like, you know, in The Sopranos, you know, you've got Tony the mob boss and things that happen to Tony uh, in his work life, you know, of being a mob boss affects his life at home with his family. And that in turn affects like the interactions he has with his therapist and everything. And these, you know, these three kind of like 
places that we see Tony, you can just watch how these different aspects of his life bump into other aspects of his life. And so I told myself that if I wanted to be kind of like, you know, if I wanted to be true to the characters and kind of like respect the characters as human, I couldn't put them through, I couldn't kill all their friends and not have it affect them. You know what I mean? That's fair. Yeah. Oh yeah. And so like you get to, you meet Norgal and Agatha, you understand the world in volume one, um, volume two, you know, you get to see deeper inside them as they actually interact with more people. Mm -hmm. And we take something from, from them. And as we watch, you know, the rest unfold, they now have this, this whole, that that they've got to deal with, you know. Right. It's, it makes perfect sense, and that's how good storytelling is developed, is that as you're telling the story, well, I don't know if you approach it this way, but a couple of comic book writers have said, like, I would say, you know, that was a great idea. Like, what? how did you come up with that? And I said, I didn't. I just wrote the story, and it presents itself as you're allowing these characters to grow, <laughs> and you remember, like, hey, this person lost something. That's got to he can't do this without that making and having an effect. Like it should affect what he does. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so much, and like I said before, so much of what, you know, has happened in Headlopper was not a part of the original plan. I just try to keep the promise that I'll, I'll make what does happen to them also affect them. And so exactly. Yeah. As I'm working on like the details of something, they come to a, a place where I'm just like, I don't think they'd be comfortable with this or, or, you know, this, this feeling that they have would probably lead them to make this choice. And then I'm like, now I'm going down this road. Let's see what's down there. You know? Yeah. I get it. If, if Headlopper was turned into an animation, who would voice Norgal? <laughs> I have a, I have a little fantasy pick and it's, I do think that both of them, since they're such archetypes, they are very much you know, <coughs> excuse me, kind of like what you expect. He's a gruff barbarian, and she's a crazy witch. <laughs> I feel like such cartoon characters already, like a lot of the different people could fill the role. Like the voices are, I feel like you can read it. You probably can hear voices, and they're probably the same ones I hear. Um, but I do think it would be really funny, since like there is a kind of comedy aspect to it is my little fantasy pick is um is uh nick offerman as um as norgal with megan Mullally as agatha because they're both so funny and as a married couple they're so funny together i just think hearing the two of them play <laughs> off together like that would be and i don't know if the way to do that would be to record them in the booth or something simultaneously but I just feel like they're such a funny pair that we've already seen together. And he played Ron Swanson on Parks and Rec, so we know he can play like stern and stoic in a way that still can be funny. And so many of Megan Mullally's characters also, Parks and Rec, are just complete lunatics. And her voice already sounds like she could do an Agatha laugh. So <laughs> like my favorite pick, because I just think as a duo, they make a really good team. Let's do it. If anyone's listening, those are the picks that the creator wants for his characters. <laughs> that would be cool. And off right there. <laughs> um, Norgal, what's cool about your character is that he's had crossovers with some other characters from Image Comics, which is always kind of 
those are the real best Easter eggs when Image <laughs> does that to, like with each other. I don't know if sure. you've read Crossover at all from uh, no, I haven't read Crossover yet. Yeah, gonna, there's a lot of cool stuff like that. I've only seen the covers, and I'm just like, there's a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a fun book. But who who else would you like to see Norgal have a, a crossover with? What other IP? No. Um, I think it'd be awesome if he met like Conan, of course. Maybe some of the like obvious ones or Red Sonia. I know years ago Mignola did a um, Fawford and the Great Mauser comic. Um, any anywhere in the <laughs> if you met anyone in the entire uh, you know Hellboy universe, that would be cool. Um, friend cool. of Matt Smith, he draws mostly Hellboy stuff now. I forget what, which book. Young Hellboy, I think he's on. Matt Smith has an awesome book called um, Barbarian Lord that he used to do. That is just incredible. Like that would be a perfect a perfect mix for Norgal and Agatha to meet. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think what else. Certainly, any fantasy realm he just fits into. Again, there's such like kind of archetypes. And I just squished them together and uh, made them hate each other. So they, they fit a lot of different places. Yeah. No, it's always cool when something like that happens, especially in your case where you said that you were so excited to work with the creators of Rumble because you respected both of those talents, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, they, they're both friends of mine, um, but even but that is not really a factor in wanting to do it. Like, I, I'm a huge fan of you know both of their work i you know reading john arcudi's um you know bprd stuff was such a huge part and finding that was such a huge part of like college and just having this it just like was buying any bprd or hellboy trade i could find at the time and that was huge and then you know james heron he got to draw the uh, crossover with me and um I'd been a fan of his since just he was like a student and I was just looking at his stuff on the internet. So it was, it was so cool to see him like go on to actually make great comics that I love. I mean, BPRD is I think one of the first things he got pulled into on that's just coincidence. And then, um, rumble, obviously fantastic. And I absolutely adore ultra mega, his current project at skybound. Um, so yeah, it was teaming up with, you know, some of my, you know, heroes, some of my living legend heroes is like, it's a no brainer. It's like one of those moments where you're like, how did I get so lucky? You know? Yeah. <laughs> I love their stuff. That's great. That makes me happy when people uh, get those opportunities. And again, they, they come just if you try it, just you did 20, 20 pages of head lopper and it yeah. took you down, you know, a, a road where who knows what's next. I had no idea. Yeah. Even, even when I was doing, you know, even when I was started working on Headlopper for image, I still was like, Oh yeah, we'll probably do, you know, a volume one. And that's probably it. You know, like I just, you know, I took it like kind of one bite at a time and, and, uh, and focused on it. And then if I was, and it was just really grateful each step of the way that I was able to take it another step further. Um, and so I just I just stayed with it. I thought I didn't think it would, I didn't plan this this way, but I just kind of hung on. Yeah. No, that's great. And I got to say, I appreciate the way that you set up 
uh, the storytelling of Headlopper in that you did these you know longer issues, and even when you get a trade, it it's quote unquote four issues, but you get your money's worth as far as story is concerned and content of that that product. I I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, it's um, yeah, they're generally about two hundred pages. I try to make um, I'm usually. I make them as long as I can for the time that I have. So I spend, you know, each issue I spend three months on. And so that ends up being anywhere from 35 to, you know, maybe 50, 55 pages or so. I let the, um, I let story and, uh, and deadlines dictate how long they are basically. Right. Cause like my own devices, it would be so long. Like, <laughs> really, like, uh, I like to stretch it out, and um, so I just I have to I, cu- I have to cut each volume down to about two hundred pages. Otherwise, I could easily make them three hundred. The first volume is almost three hundred. Yeah. Any any plan to do like a? I mean, it wouldn't really make sense except for like a completionist thing, but a, like a compendium or like a bigger sized version of a collected volume. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to. I've talked about it with Image um, a little bit, and I think I'm going to do it at some point. Uh, I'm hung up on some, you know, very silly technicalities, and part of it is just not having this very, very long-term plan for it. Right. Um, right as it stands now, there's four volumes out. I think where I'd like to end this kind of like big story, not necessarily end the series as a whole, but you know, end the larger story that I've been developing with it um, on volume nine um so yeah I'm, about, I'm only about halfway through um so but i so i'm like yeah so i have four out now so if i want to do like an oversized hardcover do i do just every three volumes put them into a hardcover or do i do all four that are out now like i don't it seems i'm not sure what to do <laughs> how to do it but because if I do, if I did every three make a hard do a hardcover, you know that would be, you know there'd be three hardcovers that would tell the. Big That'd be great. That'd be great. Yeah, but, collectors would love that. I know a few people who would buy a compendium. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I know it's something that people people like. You know, anyone who wants to read a story in length these days seems to want the, you know, a nice size hardcover. I like to read if I can. Yeah, for sure. Any, if you had any choice of Headlopper merchandise, what would be your first thing that you would want? Well, I've been lucky that I have had a good amount of merchandise, um, and honestly, it's like I feel like I've had the things that I would choose. I would okay. like just continue to make the same stuff. Like I got to make a vinyl toy out of it. It was awesome, like eight inch vinyl toy, and I I collect that toys like that so it was like perfect and so fun to be able to design it we did a plush for agatha which oh. i don't really i don't really collect them so i was like yeah sure sounds good um, how do we get an agatha plush how can someone get that um i don't know if they still exist um <laughs> if they, if you can so get them they're on uh skeleton crew uh studios.com skeleton crew is the company that produced them um, after we did the Agatha plush, I said it almost as a joke, but it ended up working out. I was like, you know, it'd be cool if we made a, took the plush and just turned it into a puppet. 
And they're like, we might be able to do that. And they came back and they took the plush. They blew it up a little larger so it's big enough for your hand to fit in it. And so they still have these. There's an We have an Agatha actual puppet. And it's it's hilarious. And like, uh. really, it's got these thick, the, the hair is like these thick, almost like dreadlocked, like things of like yarn. It's it's really well made. It's super cool. That's also at Skeleton Crew Studios. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's good. That's cool. That's very cool. Um, there, Dave actually, my buddy Dave was saying, is there an Agatha plushie that we can get? So I think he'll be happy oh, to hear what you just described and he'll probably try to get it. There you oh, go, yeah. Dave. Shout out. Um, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. It was, uh, it was a very quick hour. I could have got, I could keep going with you. I hope you could come back. <laughs> And we can we could do maybe like a, a rapid fire with Andrew McLean. Just ask you twenty rapid fire questions. Perfect. I'm down. Get into some metal albums. I hear you. Oh, <laughs> who would who would win between Headlopper and Murder Falcon? Since they're two of the most metal characters. You can't do that. You can't put us toe to toe like that. <laughs> I guess it would depend on you know weapon of choice. You know if we're going if it's bladed weapons, you know. I think Headlopper's got the got it, but you know, if you've got some, you know, futuristic technology, a big machine gun or something, maybe Murder Falcon. I don't know, man. Headlopper's undefeated. I love Murder Falcon, but nothing seems to get in the way of Headlopper. <laughs> <laughs> Only because I write them that way, though. Yeah, that's true. Well, thank you, Andrew. We're looking forward to the the next uh, issues of Headlopper and the collected editions. Where can people follow you if they want to follow? Um, I spend most of my social media time, uh, like 99% of it, on uh, Instagram. My handle is just my name, Andrew McLean, with no punctuation or anything. McLean is spelled M-A-C-L-E-A-N. I also, my company, Laser Wolf Attack, is also on um, Instagram, and that's where, like, we sell all of the merch that we make and everything. Um, but yeah, for my art specifically, um, the busiest place is definitely Instagram. There's also a, um, Facebook page. I think the art of Andrew McLean, um, but most of that is just stuff that bounces from Instagram. Cool. Very cool. Thank you for coming on the show. I hope to have you back, uh, sooner than later and that I hope you come to Toronto and we can meet in person. That'd be awesome. Absolutely. That would be so fun. All right. Yeah. Thank you everybody. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Andrew, for coming on. Be sure to read Headlopper, Apocalyptic Girl, uh, all good stuff. Indie stuff, like good quality comics. Support indie comics, guys. Thank you, everybody. Rate and review the show, and we'll be back with more.